0: Every building that is built today is designed as a prototype, right? You're doing it for the first time every single time. It sort of makes sense that buildings are really expensive. It sort of makes sense that there are cost overruns because you're not applying continuous
1: learning to these really large products. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant and welcome to the Bridge in the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software Grey Tech Group. You're invited to join our construction, innovation, and digital transformation adventure with a mission to model the future for this great industry. My guest today is Andrew Staniforth. He's the CEO of Assembly OSM, working to make urban growth more sustainable, scalable, and inclusive by delivering high-rise urban housing using the manufacturing techniques of the aerospace and auto industry. Andrew studied real estate finance and computer science at the University of Pennsylvania and graduated with dual degrees from the Wharton School and the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you. Really excited to be here. Yeah. Looking forward to the the conversation as well, too. Uh, So you you had many interests, (laughs) it it sounds like, and, and fields that you could have gone down, what made you get into construction?
0: Wow, that's a, that's a great question. So, my my background you you hit on it, studied computer science and then real estate and finance. And I knew I wanted to have some level of building, right? You know, the engineering path, and I didn't realize that that meant actual buildings when when I started school, but um as my interests sort of matured through college, it became really clear that construction, buildings development was the perfect compromise um, or perfect sweet spot for all of my, my interests. And I happened to do a summer internship uh, with Forest City after my sophomore year. And the first project I ever worked on was the tallest modular tower in North America. And it sort of set the tone for what I wanted out of my career, which is, wow, you can actually use technology to change the construction industry and and that pattern of how do you bridge those two? I've been trying to repeat and close the gap between uh, where construction is today and where advanced manufacturing, where technology is, um, in every role that I've had
1: since. Yeah. So, how do you think on the construction side? You know, in the the bio, I, I talked about how you you're, you're leveraging the, the techniques of aerospace and the the auto industry. What yeah. can that really teach the the construction industry on? embracing tech and, and, you know, really enhancing the, the workflows.
0: Yeah. I use a bunch of phrases trying to describe this topic, but the first is really when I, when I talk about using the techniques of aerospace and automotive, I'm talking about two really important things that, that those two industries do. The first is around what they actually model. Um, so traditionally in architecture, you model maybe in Revit, you produce, uh, a BIM model, and then you flatten it down to a 2D set of drawings, you hand it off and a contractor builds it. Maybe they build their own model out of it. But really in, in the aerospace and automotive industry, they're doing direct to fabrication where that actual model is what drives the CNC machine. It's what drives um, the robotic weld cells and really is that end-to-end single source of product information that flows from the design intent all the way through. And that is not really done in construction. It's really important to bring that technology to advanced you know, building delivery. The other element that uh, we're taking from those two industries is around distributed manufacturing, where typically when people think about modular construction, they think about a giant factory with a bunch of people building a building inside that factory. And the way that advanced manufacturing typically works is you actually have a network of skilled suppliers that do different components of whatever you're building. So Boeing has people that make the fuselage and the wings, and they are different suppliers specialized in exactly that. We have the same network. We have people that make bathrooms. We have people that make kitchens, the walls, the floors. They're really skilled at that, and they build to our spec. And then we assemble it, hence our name, in our facilities, just the way that Boeing assembles... uh, 777 or 787 uh, with a network of components that were made by people across the world.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, so what hurdle do you see from your vantage point that's in the way of, of really uh, realizing the, the vision of making the model the that single source of truth throughout the entire project lifecycle?
0: I think one of the biggest hurdles that we're overcoming um is around the unique nature of buildings right so in most mm-hmm. manufactured products you build and you design a product and then you repeat and manufacture that product so you design the you know 777 and then you build a ton of them you might change things around the edges for delta versus united but most of the plane remains the same with mm-hmm. buildings especially in the topology that we're working with with which is high-rise urban development, every building is unique, right? You have different lots, you have zoning, you have politics, you have developers that don't want their building to look next like their neighbors. So there's a huge amount of uh, design and customization that's just inherently necessary in buildings. And when it comes to modeling at a level of fabrication detail that enables our model, it's a lot to do every single time if you're designing a unique building. So what we've done in the hurdle that we're going over is we've chosen to use Katia as the main single source of product information, the software platform that we use. And a key element of what we use within that software is parametrically um, designing all of our systems. So when, when you talk to a lot of modular people, they have their templates. I like to describe our templates as stretchy templates, right? So we have a bathroom that if you have a five by eight bathroom and you have a unique configuration in the building that it has to be you know, five by eight foot six, you're not starting from scratch, right? All the mm-hmm. intelligence around what happens when you extend dimensions or change configuration is built into the actual parametric template that allows us to be a lot more custom without starting from scratch on every single building.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's really important because while yes, there is customization inherent in, in building, not every single aspect of the building needs to be a unicorn every single time <laughs> you know uh, yeah. a bathroom is a bathroom at the end of the day <laughs> there's certain things that we can be the same and nobody even really knows that they're the same <laughs> uh-huh. so i yeah. think having that stretchiness is that's critical
0: yeah and and the the perception of customized um is really important right No one cares that the stud alignment inside the walls is a certain pattern that optimizes us to work with a certain type of supplier, right? That we can do that all day long and it allows us to have the repeatability and the standardization that enables a manufacturing process, but the end user and the developer have a highly customized product for what they see and care about.
1: Yeah, so this may sound like a a softball coming at you and and maybe probably is, but uh, how has the traditional buildings and that model, how's that failed to really keep up with the modern demands that is being placed on construction? There's a a lot
0: to unpack within that, right? I think there's there's a lot of ways that um, the traditional process drops the ball. And I think the easiest way to sum it up is every building that is built today is designed as a prototype. Right? You're doing it for the first time every single time. So you mm-hmm. don't benefit from innovation. You don't benefit from repeating things over and over and improving in the way that you can with a productized approach. Um, and I think when you think about that as every building starts from scratch, it sort of makes sense that buildings are really expensive. It sort of makes sense that there are cost overruns because you're not applying continuous learning to these really large products.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so how does uh collaboration then play in and and the the need to to really know who your team is because i think that's also part of the the problem on cost overruns that the way the industry is structured right now the architect doesn't really on a true practical level talk with the GC that talks with the subs that, you know, totally. everybody's doing kind of their own thing. You even mentioned it at the, the beginning that the architect may design this beautiful model and then it gets condensed down to a, a 2D print and sent over. And then the GC goes, I'm not using this and rebuilds it their own. And then the sub does the same thing. So <laughs> how does collaboration and the, the that need for teamwork play into this?
0: Yeah. I, I think the situation that you just described is really born out of the contractual structures that we work with today, right? Where everyone has a certain amount of risk that they're allowed to take for corporate reasons, for insurance reasons. And every time that you try to stretch your scope a little bit, which might better the holistic product uh, project, you're actually taking on more risk, right? So one of the reasons that architects flatten down their drawings to a set of 2D, Um, documents is that is what their insurance allows them to have as an instrument of service, right? And they have tech directors on staff that can verify that everything on those 2D drawings is correct. When it gets to sharing the model, typically you have to sign your BIM waiver and all of that to unlock that access. So all of the different players in development have their own risk, right? And they've boxed their risk using However, but, you know, contractual structures or insurance or just holding information back to make sure that they don't um, get hurt. The way that we're approaching that is we're changing how the contractual structure works. Um, So rather than us working with a developer and then having a, you know, a developer contract with the architect, a developer contract with a modular player and a developer contract with an on-site CM, all of those players are beneath the assembly umbrella. So we're structured Mm -hmm. as a a design build agreement where we take it from concept all the way through to certificate of occupancy. But then below our contract, we have architects, engineers, uh, the CM on site, all of our suppliers. And because they're underneath our umbrella, we take the the handcuffs off collaboration, which Mm -hmm. means that information can flow. So you're not protecting uh, your model and only releasing 2D drawings is you're all underneath the uh, assembly umbrella. So you can have the architect collaborating very freely and sharing the model with the on-site CM because it's all underneath the assembly umbrella. It means that assembly takes on more risk, but what we're doing from a technological perspective is we're building tools that allow us to then mitigate that risk and still preserve that open collaboration amongst all the partners on the team.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and really be able to benefit then on the the continuous learning side of things because it's the same players every single time. So you're able to, you know, build the a the, the trust there yeah. between the the different stakeholders and, and players. But but also they're able to say, hey, remember when we did this project this way, we learned not to do it this way. <laughs> Let's go forward and, with Plan B this time.
0: Yeah, and and that that's one of the really interesting challenges that we have right now is. We want to have a growing list of partners that we can work with, right? You know, we, we've worked with shop. We were born out of shop architects, but we want to work with many architectural firms. And how do you set up structures where you can be working with architects that are specialized in certain markets or specialized in certain product types and have them still benefit from the continuous learning, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't have a, a quick, easy answer to that, um, but I think it's something that's at the forefront of how we're, we're thinking about all of these relationships that we're building in the earliest years of the company.
1: Yeah. Are you seeing more of a, a kind of grassroots and, and groundswell in the effort to kind of take down some of those silos and and open up collaboration practically and not just speak to it? You know, it's been a, such a buzzword in the industry for, for a long time, but practically. Are you, able, are you starting to see that, that swing and, and movement to actually do it?
0: At a macro level, I think it's still a little buzzwordy. I think yeah. within assembly, because we have the protection of our design-build contract, we're actually able to take the handcuffs off. I think a lot of the, the ways that people talk about collaboration outside of a design-build contract, outside of assembly always hit that wall of legal insurance and and the the practical realities of that but within assembly um we've actually been able to work pretty fluidly with different people within that um that contractual structure we're at the very early stages of it so that i'm sure there will be bumps along the way but um so far it's been been working pretty well
1: yeah nice well kind of shift in gears a, a bit i know another topic that uh, you guys do a lot around is on the sustainability side of things. So, what's something that the the industry needs to to maybe rethink around sustainability to achieve the desired results? Yeah,
0: the the biggest thing that comes to mind, um, and it's a challenge for us right now, is a lot of the ways that you measure carbon impact sustainability are really focused on operational carbon. And what that does is it puts a weird split incentive problem where you're trading embodied carbon for operational carbon because the tools and metrics and your investors are measuring that operational and not embodied. And when you think about the first 10 years of a project, 80% of the carbon is from the embodied carbon that went into that building right from the get-go. So we're mm-hmm. really focused on not just quantifying that within our own systems um, and quantifying what conventional is so we can benchmark against it, but also working with investors, the investors behind our developers to make sure that they understand the benefits of looking at embodied carbon and not just operational carbon.
1: Mm. Uh, how do you go about making that that mental shift and, and kind of shift out the the lens that you're looking at?
0: yeah I, I think it's um I think it's really around helping them come up with a way to measure embodied carbon in a standardized way. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, when you read a lot of the the guidelines um, that come out from these different organizations that represent LP investors that are trying to decarbonize their portfolios, they always have like a couple lines at the end, like, we know we should be looking at embodied carbon. We just don't exactly know how we should be looking at it. So yeah. we'll, we, what we've actually set out to do um, is come up with a good way of looking at embodied carbon. Um, it starts for us with using a much higher fidelity bill of materials of everything that's going into our building, quantifying that from a material perspective and carbon that goes into the materials, looking at the full logistics side of you know shipping mods and Uh, different components in and out of our facility to the on-site uh, component. And then also looking at not just that component of the first uh, components going in, but the full life cycle through the end of life of buildings, where if you think about the life cycle of a building, it's going to be there 50, 100 years, depending on where it's built. At the end, someone might be knocking it down. Someone might be reconfiguring it. And depending on your initial choices of what you put in, it's really going to change what that end result is, right? And if you can measure that um, both for what we're doing and for conventional, which is a much harder problem, um, you can actually go to some of these investor groups and lay out our methodology as a way to open up the conversation around measurement and actually coming up with a pretty standardized approach.
1: Yeah, so uh, how... How do you go about then designing with the the end in mind if the end is, you know, 100, 150 years down the road and, and really work backward? That's a big time scope.
0: Yeah, so we, um, we don't just design for the end, um, but we do think about our approach looking at, um, I call it like two factors, right? Everything uh-huh. that we're designing today has to be designed for assembly. The flip side of that is everything that we design has to be designed for disassembly, right? So the choices that we make with how we stack our mods, how components go together, um, we think about that first assembly process because it's very practical, right? We run an assembly facility. We have to know that our components are gonna clip together in a pretty easy way. But the flip side of it is if you're doing things that only clip together, but you have to come through with a wrecking crew to take it apart, that is not um, the the full way of thinking about it. So every one of our systems is designed with both of those lenses applied um,
1: when we think about our components and the full assembly process. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, where do you think construction's going to really be in and look like in, in 10 years? Do, do we have we moved the ball further down the the field on the sustainability and the modular front or or Kind of look into your your crystal ball where do you see it happening
0: yeah i i I think 10 years um we will definitely have moved the ball pretty far forward and i think the reason that i i say that emphatically is i think we're in a little bit of a perfect storm moment happening where uh we have housing crisis we have inflation we have inflation fighting which means higher interest rates uh You know, climate change, all of these things are basically leading to a situation where there's going to be creative destruction, right? The the business models that worked uh, Mm -hmm. previously are not going to work. And that creates a vacuum in an ecosystem that needs development. And that, that vacuum will hopefully be filled with companies like Assembly and other companies that are moving the ball forward that think about those metrics right? think about sustainability think about uh what it means when you have a labor shortage when when it when you have um you know issues around land availability in our urban centers and all of those factors need to be taken into account and i think the next generation of companies that you know i i i know a lot of our investors call it we're in the sort of modular 2.0 era i think a lot of us um our cohort of uh, of companies in the this modular 2.0 world are thinking about it in that way
1: yeah so what's the what's the next step in creating the uh, a truly a sustainable construction industry what does that look like to you yeah the the next i think the next big step
0: is going to be um, moving Right now, uh, the way I think it works is developers buy a site, right? They move through a traditional design and construction process. And they might during that process think, ah, oh, should I look at modular? Uh, or should I look at a new technology and implement it in my process? But it's almost a secondary add-on thought to a very conventional, just like, yep, I'm gonna do it conventionally and maybe add on these things. Uh-huh. i think the biggest shift that i think is going to happen soon and i think it's happening right now is the first default is going to be an advanced approach it's going to be modular it's going to be panelized it's going to be that and then if that doesn't work then you'll default to a conventional approach and i think that order of operations whether your prime strategy is a modular strategy or what whether your prime strategy is a conventional strategy. That transformation is the next big step, I think, in our industry to to increase widespread adoption um, of technologies like Assembly.
1: Bridging the gap is powered by GrayTech Group. As a global BIM and modeling expert, Great Tech is dedicated to empowering construction and manufacturing professionals to digitize and industrialize their processes to improve performance and build a sustainable tomorrow. With more than 30 years in the industry, they know how to be your partner in a world where change is the new normal and always strive to enable their customers to gain an increased competitive advantage to model the future. Visit GreyTech.com dash group.com for more information. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, uh, kind of going back to the, the theory of buzzword versus practical, uh, when does innovation make that, that transition between buzzword to practicality? I think innovation, um,
0: I think innovation needs to have two components it has to have sort of the the invention side and then there has to be the commercialization side um and i think there's a lot of elements in construction tech broadly that have a lot of the invention side but don't yet have the full commercialization side why is this better economically for the developer why is it better economically for the end user. And I think right now that the transition between buzzword and reality is going to happen when you actually have really viable business models around these things, right? So one of the things that we're really honing in on is in high interest rate environments, which we're in right now, the value of time is so much more expensive. So how do we help developers quantify that to help them understand that going with assembly is actually a much more economical thing to do because you can shave off 30 to 50% off your project. And helping them understand that Mm -hmm. it's not just innovation because it's a buzzword, but it's innovation because it has the most economic thing to do for your project. I think the the translation of um, carbon as well from sort of this externality into something that actually gets priced um, is another thing that's gonna push
1: this forward. Mm-hmm yeah, I, I, think that that's a, it's a great statement of that, that measurability aspect of it, cause that's what takes it from the invention side of the equation yeah. to the, the commercialization side that there, there is an opportunity there, there's not, it's not a, a great kind of pie in the sky idea that there there's it's grounded in the, the practicality of the industry. Yeah. Uh, so how do people find out more information and, and connect with you and find out what all you're, you're doing at assembly
0: yeah so the best way to to check us out is assemblyosm.com, Um and you can reach out to us on the website we're focused on urban markets and for us that means markets like new york la the bay area chicago boston the area the, these markets that need more housing that are constrained Uh, with available sites where you have to be creative and build high-rise, complex custom structures. Um, That's where we're starting, and and from there, like many startups, we have global aspirations, but um, starting with the areas with with most need for for high-rise development, um, we're releasing uh, a new website soon. It'll have a lot more information as we move into that execution phase of the company, Um, and we'd love to hear from everyone, uh, developers, partners, contractors architects Um, we're building a collaborative ecosystem and we want everyone to be a part of it
1: yeah awesome well final question for you if i could give you all power to innovate one thing at the the snap of your fingers what would you choose to innovate in the construction industry
0: wow oh that is that is a great question um I actually think the biggest hurdle in the U.S. right now is contractual structures, right? And I actually think that we have tons of tailwinds around pure invention. I think with uh, companies that are innovating in the climate tech space, there's venture money behind it, but I actually think if, if... You need, if you wanted that like boost um, of adoption, it would really come down to revamping the contractual structures that lead to a bureaucracy that edges out those technologies. I think if if you remove a lot of those contractual barriers, um, we'd have higher adoption, um, increased innovation, um, higher productivity, lower costs, more housing, less carbon intensive buildings, all of that. Um, I think will happen naturally if you can change um, some of the the silos that are that are implemented because of the way our, our legal structures work.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's huge. Uh, that's a great answer. It's a great answer because it does become a huge roadblock. That you know the there is innovation, there is technology happening in construction. I, yeah, people say that it's a laggard, and you know everybody's seen the McKinsey and all that stuff, but. That's not necessarily true. On a day-to-day thing, there there's plenty of tech, there's plenty of innovation, there's plenty of creative, open-minded people in <laughs> construction, but there the risk-averse part of, of construction that goes back to the contracts and the, the you know those lawyers, everybody's favorite punching bag. There, uh, it, it is a big, big problem because you can have all the the will and the desire to to innovate and bring on tech, but if your hands are tied because of the contract, yeah. You're not gonna get very far implementing the stuff that you know you need to. Yeah.
0: And and you know, right now, I don't think you're gonna eliminate all the stakeholders in a development project. I think they're you know, when we think about building a building, you think developer, architect, contractor, but behind the developer there's their construction lender, there's their LP, there's the likely the LP of their LP, right, that flows down. Um, and there's a lot of stakeholders that um, because there's just so many, the contractual structures have gotten so complex and it keeps everyone nicely in their risk mitigated box. Um, and you're never going to remove those those tiers of partners completely. Right. There's always going to be LPs to LPs. Um, but if you can change how they operate, I think that that's going to be the biggest uh, win for our
1: industry. Yeah so what's the what's the next step in (laughs) in helping create that (laughs) that change i
0: I actually think it's it's you can start pretty simply at the contractual structure for just the building itself so typically right if you were building a building you'd have uh you know an architecture agreement maybe an aia form agreement you'll have your cm agreement you might hold all the contracts for your engineers and all flows up to the owner. You have different contracts for those. Um, I think a big step forward is using a design-build contract. I think that's an easy one. Um, I think that if you look around the world in the countries that have pioneered more innovation than in the U.S., you'll see um, design-build agreement much more prevalent in those. And I think um, it's not just correlation. It, I think it's actually practically causation, right? you change the contractual structure and you get more innovation. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's the starting point.
1: Yeah. Love it. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for, for taking the time and, and coming on and keep up uh, all the amazing things that you're doing. It's very cool to hear and, and see what all is going on. So thanks so much. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take, not everything is a unicorn in construction. I believe the future of the industry does run through industrialization and incorporating manufacturing principles for productization. Second take, when it comes to sustainability, Andrew made an interesting point that we need to start shifting our mindset and KPIs from being centered on operational carbon to embodied carbon. If we can start with the long-term goal in mind, and work backwards to establish the correct measurements. We will then start to see the movement necessary. Final take, removing some of the contractual barriers that Andrew brought up in his final innovation answer is going to be critical to the future success of the industry when it comes to unleashing the power of innovation and true collaboration. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software, Craytech Group, at ASTI.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is hosted, directed, and produced by Todd Wyant. Edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an Applied Software production. Copyright Applied Software 2022.